My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, this is Pastor Lane Jones uh, for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. Uh, I have uh, with me today uh, Joe Davis. Uh, I'd like to have him share his testimony with you. Now, Joe, you grew up in this community, in uh, what we would call downtown Milanville, rural Pennsylvania here in the 1950s and 60s. You attended small schools in the early grades. Then you graduated from Damascus High School at the time. Uh, what year did you graduate, and then what did you do after graduation? Well, I graduated in 1964, and I joined the Marine Corps right after graduation in delayed entry program at the age of 17. Wow. So um, that that era, uh, Vietnam is starting to heat up. So um, how old were you when, you when you landed in? Did you go to Vietnam? Yes. I landed at Da Nang July 7th, 1965. I was 18 years old. Wow. How long, how long did you serve there? Ten months and four days. Wow. Uh, what was it like uh, returning home? Because the Vietnam War is still, at that time, hotly debated. You're coming back in, what, 1965? 66. 66, okay. And so it's, 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 there's a lot of politics going on when you're returning. What was that like? Uh, locally, we were treated well. In a small farm community, and however, we were not allowed to wear uniforms into Washington D.C. because of anti-war protests, and we were made out to be the enemy. Uh, it caused me to distrust the government, and to a certain degree, I still don't trust the government till this day. Mm. Now, how did events of the war affect your thoughts about life, and especially about God? Uh, because of very heavy casualties uh, in my unit, uh, I became angry with God. Mm. So uh, you come back home. Uh, I believe shortly after you started working at Moore Printing down in Honesdale. Um, how long did you work for them? You know, when I first came back, I worked at Chromatube. I was a quality tester at Chromatube and White Mills. And then uh, I left there and I went to Moore in Honesdale. And I worked for them uh, for 37 years wow. plus. Wow. So you uh, also worked as a deputy game protector, I believe, in northern Wayne County. And how long did you serve at that capacity? Yeah, I served in northern Wayne for 15 years, and I served in southern Wayne for 11 years. So total was 26 years. And that was, was it volunteer work? Are you getting paid for that? or You got paid some per diem, but it was a lot of volunteer work. Mm-hmm. Now, you ended up then working for Donnelly Printing. At that time, it was the largest printing company in the world as a corporate vice president. How would you describe your relationship with God during your years in the business world? Uh, I was always open about my belief in God. And I always conducted myself forthright and honestly with employees and customers. Uh, I did a presentation to the plant in Angola stating my priorities in life, and I told them that God was the number one priority in my life. Mm. So you're out, uh, you moved around some because of your business, because of your job. And uh, when you moved back then from the Midwest, you had a problem with attending Baptist churches. Why was that? Yes, I did. Uh, I had experienced uh, judgment uh, from the pulpit in a Baptist church locally before I had left this area. And then while running a large pressure-sensitive operation in Angola, Indiana, 
my wife was invited to a revival at a local uh, Baptist church. She had gotten into a Bible study with some local ladies from the Baptist church. Uh, I told her I would go, but I warned her there would be judgment. And not five minutes into the sermon, the evangelist had everyone going to hell but the Baptists. Um, so, um, yeah, you felt like they were just uh, basically considering themselves the only ones right. The only ones that were on their way to heaven, the Baptists were... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was extremely judgmental. I mean, he just named other denominations forthrightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that unless you were in the Baptist church, you were, you were doomed to hell. It mm-hmm. was very judgmental. Huh. Now, you did end up coming to our church here, which is a Baptist church, um, and uh, won't go into that story, but you joined our church saying that you received Christ, and I'm confident that you sincerely believed that you were a Christian at the time. Now, at some point, you became convinced that you were not truly converted yet. How did that happen? Well, it was uh, in 2006, and uh, we were preparing for the Christmas cantata, and I was sitting in a choir next to a great guy and godly guy, Cal Jones, and then listening to the testimonies in church on New Year's Eve 2006, uh, I came under conviction listening to solid Christians pour out their hearts about what God had done for them and how grateful they were, uh, I really came under conviction, realizing that uh, all those years, I guess I was operating in a partnership with God instead of being a servant for God. Mm. So how did you end up coming to Christ? Uh, I'm the New Year's Eve service, and then after that, my wife and youngest son and family headed to Disney World uh, right after the New Year's 2007. And I was working from home, and I came under conviction, and God laid out all my sins for me to see. For three days and nights, a spiritual battle raged in my heart and my mind, and the only place I could find relief was in a new NIV Bible my wife had given me. And I literally just held it. On January 4, 2007, after about, at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon, I really needed to get right with God. So I called Pastor Jones out of desperation, and both he and Molly came to my home, and I accepted Christ as my Savior and asked for forgiveness for my sins. Wow. So what changes have you noticed in your life since you were truly saved? Uh, I truly try to be in church, hearing God's word whenever the doors are open. I try to read and document what I have read and understand in God's word daily. I keep a, a journal. I try to spend time in prayer with God daily. I have done visitation with and without pastor. I believe I have helped lead a number of people to the Lord. I continue to try and lead friends and others to the Lord. I fully understand that God is in control, and my job is to do His will as long as He has me here. And the most precious thing in this life is a soul. 
that will spend eternity, that soul, in one of two places, heaven or hell. Mm. I serve God, not me. That's good. Now, if if there if you were, were going to advise someone who maybe would be in your spot that is 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 because you thought you were safe for a number of years, if if you're advising somebody who's confused about that issue, what what would you tell them to do? If you're not sure about your salvation, you need to talk to someone uh, about it uh, so you have a clear understanding of what salvation is and. Uh, if you have that understanding, get on your knees now and ask God to forgive you. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you need to tell somebody about it and you need to get baptized because baptism is a natural step of faith mm-hmm. after you have done that. it's You're not saved by baptism. You're saved by asking God to come into your life. That's how you receive salvation. And I would just encourage anyone to do that, uh, you know. And and if you need to talk to someone, I know Pastor Jones uh, would be more than happy to talk to you, Pastor Andrew, and there's other good, solid Christian men and women in the community that would help you with that. Amen. Good. Well, I really appreciate your time, Joe. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I was reading a few days back about a. An actor, they said he played so many different parts. Of course, it probably was half of a joke, but anyway, someone came up to him and they they said, are you so-and-so? They they recognized him. He said, well, not today. We we do a lot of acting. We really do. Um, One of the characteristics that God wants us to have is uh, like a simplicity or a, a just an, an honesty, transparency. And, um, and Jesus is dealing with some people who, in this particular uh, message that he's preaching, who are questioning his authority, but it's really, that really is uh, a cover for what's really going on. And so I've entitled this, Christ's Response to Those Who Question His Authority, but really what's going on is the, uh, the issue of Christ's authority versus their hypocrisy. A lot of, and it's not true of everybody, there are definitely people who do not know whether Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God, and they're, they're seeking that question. And there's nothing wrong with, with honestly and intellectually trying to answer that question. But there are others that, that really have every reason to know better and are just refusing uh, hiding behind a mask, as it were, refusing to uh, turn over their lives to Christ because basically uh, they want to run their own lives. So when we declare, uh, excuse me, when we desire for, from our sin nature to be the authority over our own lives rather than to live in submission to God and His Word, that's where most people are at today. They, they really, I want to run my own life. And the problem with that is if you want to then pretend to be a religious person, You've got to put on the act. You have to. Because either God runs my life as should be done, or, or if I'm going to act religious, I'm going to have to be fake. I'm going to have to be a fake. And so Christ is going to address people in that very spot um, uh, in, in this passage that we're looking at. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pray you'll deliver us all from the tendency that we have to act, to put on a front, to uh, fake it. 
Lord, it is something that we're very good at. And uh, it's something that is, is uh, an abomination in your sight to, to try to act in front of others as, as if we're righteous and holy and to be, in fact, in rebellion against thee. And our, our Savior was facing it in his day. We, we've, every generation faces it. And I just ask that you would give us grace, Lord, to understand uh, the real issues that are being dealt with, and not just to see what was going on uh, about 2,000 years ago, but how it relates in our own hearts and lives today. So we ask for, for your help, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start out by looking at the question of Christ's authority. That's an interesting painting to me. That's of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And it's actually appropriate in this setting uh, because uh, I want you to notice verse 23, but we're going to have to discuss the context around it. It says, And when he was come unto the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority dost thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? Now, the question is of Christ's authority. What right do you have to do what you're doing? But then we need to ask the question, what do they mean by, by what authority doest thou these things? What are they, what are they talking about? So let me just point out two major events that had just happened uh, recently that I think would probably be on these men's minds. And the first one would be the, the triumphal entry. It's in verses 1 through 11 of the same chapter that we're in. So if you just back up, you can skim verses 1 to 11, and you'll see it's, it's the triumphal entry. And if you remember, people were calling Jesus the Messiah, and the Lord was, was really in a, in, a, as, as, um, in a very bold way coming as the king to the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, and how he would come on a donkey, and the foal of a donkey would be there. All of that was in the prophecy, and Jesus is fulfilling that. And if you remember, the, the religious leaders were, were trying to get Christ to silence his disciples because they were calling him the son of David. And Jesus, remember, in answer to that, said, if they stopped, stopped shouting it, the rocks would cry out. So he absolutely refused to silence his disciples. That really was his presentation as the king to the nation. Um, that had happened just a short time before that. As a matter of fact, maybe only a day before. The second thing that also happened right around this time, if you look at verse 12 and 13 of, of the same chapter, chapter 21, is when Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple for a second time. He'd already done this once earlier in his ministry. And he goes back into the temple, and it might have been the same day of his triumphal entry, and he goes in there, and he drives out again the money changers. And you recall his, his great statement, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And so that had just happened. And their whole scheme of making money off of all the worshipers that would come to Jerusalem was, was again, uh, was, uh, how would you say it? It was, it was exposed for what it was. By Christ. And uh, again, so when they're saying, notice again, verse 23, and when he was come into the temple, so this is, this is the next day. Now if you, by the way, you could find that if you read verse 18, you put these things together. 
This is the day after his triumphal entry. They come in there and they're saying, why? What authority, what right do you have to do what you're doing? What authority, what, who gives you the right to come in like you're the king? Who gives you the right to, 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 to overthrow our money-making scheme? I wouldn't put it that way, but you understand what they're... Who gives you the right to do this? And answer to that is this message of Christ. And it really focuses on their hypocrisy. The issue is not authority. The issue really boils down to the hypocrisy of these religious people. And Christ points out three areas of hypocrisy. First of all, what I will call hypocritical honesty. It's an act of being honest. And so Jesus uh, points it out with a question. Notice verse 24. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So I, I always find this interesting, that the Lord is not um, intimidated by other people's questions. And many times he turned the question on the other person. Just, uh, just watching his ministry, it's fascinating to see this. But this is one of those cases. They say, okay, who gives you this authority? He says, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll answer that question if you answer my question first. And his question is, verse 25, the baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? Uh, John by now is dead. Uh, by the way, how did John die? Beheaded by Herod, right? King Herod. But, but John's death was encouraged by the religious leaders. They didn't like John. And so there's a crowd around, and so Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer this one for me. And that is, was John from heaven? Was he a godly man? Was his message from God, or was it a, merely a man-made message? Now notice verse 25, as they begin to twist on this one. And they reasoned among, with themselves, saying, <clears throat> and I've circled the next four words, if we shall say from heaven, he will say to us, why did ye then not then believe him? But, notice verse 26, and I've circled those first words, but if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. Let me ask you a question. Are they concerned about answering Jesus honestly? They're not. Otherwise, you just answer the question. You just simply say what you truly believe. I think he was a godly man. I think he was not a godly man. It's not that hard of a question to answer unless you're really not concerned about the truth. And you'll notice that they've huddled up and their concern is not the truth. Their concern is what, what's the best answer to say. And, and as is so often the case, it's like getting a committee. Get, you know what they say, a, a camel is a, what is it, a horse built by a committee or something like that. The committee comes together. They go through the options of how they want to answer the question, not concerned about what they really think in their true honesty, because what was their, what was their, what was their, what would have been their answer if they just were flat out honest with them? They should have said that, but they didn't want to believe John, so they would have said, now we don't believe it's from God. 
They should have said he was from God, because that's the truth. Well, what did they answer? Verse 27, they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. <laughs> the old run the middle of the road, you know what I'm saying? We cannot tell. The non-committal response. Boy, you wonder if these guys were politicians, don't you? Well, actually, they, partly they were. So Jesus' answer is, to, and he said unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. So can I ask you an opinion? Uh, this is an opinion. Why do you think Jesus didn't answer them on the issue of authority? Right. They weren't concerned about truth in the first place. And can I give you a principle that I think comes out of this? God often withholds his truth from those who have no heart for it. If you don't want to listen to him in the first place, he probably is not going to talk to you. And I know you've seen this, if you think about it. Where evidence that is as clear as day of either God's existence or, or what God is doing. John the Baptist's ministry, and Jesus will come back to this here in just a second, was clearly had the fingerprint of God on it. They wouldn't see it. And so Christ isn't interested in giving them more information for them just to throw away. There's a proverb that talks about a parable in the hand of a fool, that it does no good. He's going to twist it. He's going to use it for evil. So God's not going to give them information if they don't have a heart to listen. Which then leads to the next area of hypocrisy that Christ puts his finger on, and that is hypocritical obedience. Faking like we are obedient. Putting on the act like, oh, I'm a godly person. And so to do that, he gives them a parable of the two sons. And so notice right on top of this, verse 28, but what think ye? So I'm not going to answer your question, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father. Now, some of you would say, well, I don't know that either one of them did it really the way it should have been done. You know, both of them should have just had the, really should combine the two, right? The second one's early response and the first one's obedience. But, but the reality is, when you're looking at them, which of the two actually followed through and did what his father wanted them to do? The first one, even though he, even though he started off bad. All right. Now, this, when this says they say unto him, um, I don't think it's necessarily the religious leaders. There's a crowd of people around here. That's why they haven't answered him honestly about John the Baptist. So the crowd is probably answering. They say unto him the first. Okay, the kid that, that said no but went out and did it, he actually was the one that did the will of his father. Jesus saith unto them. Now, Jesus turns it on the religious leaders. Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. You don't think that was a stinging rebuke. The publicans and the harlots? 
Well, we all kind of know what the harlots would be, but what about those publicans? What, what, what's so bad about them? They, they would be known as, as traitors and thieves. That's right, traitors and thieves. Because they would be working for the Roman government, the Roman Empire, and they would do it ripping off the, the, their own fellow citizens. They were traitors and thieves. The traitors, the thieves, the harlots, Jesus said, are going to the kingdom of God before you are. Why? Verse 32. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. John's, there was nothing wrong with John's preaching. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I can understand for a while being skeptical of some new preacher or some new, you know what I'm saying? Because there's a lot of, of fakes out there. And, and often the people that become real popular are not really true to the scripture. That, that's not all, that, but that's not always true. So I can understand a degree of skepticism at the beginning. But I want you to go back with me and notice what John had to say to these men, because he talked directly to a lot of these leaders. Matthew chapter 3, got to go back just in the same book, chapter 3, and look with me starting at verse 7. Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 7. And when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism. Now these, again, are religious leaders. Some of them may have been the same people standing in front of Christ right then. Uh, remember, Jesus and John are living at the same time. Uh, John was executed a few months earlier. John sees these religious leaders come to his baptism. He said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He's saying you're a bunch of snakes. Now, was John right? Yeah, he was. They were hypocrites. They, were, they, weren't, keep, they weren't following God's law. They, weren't, they were acting. So he calls them snakes. He says, who's warned you to free from the laughter? Come, everybody pats them on the back and says, oh, you're such a wonderful person. He's saying, has anybody told you that you need to flee from your own destruction in hell? That's what he's talking about. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. Show that you are repentant, John is saying. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with, fire, with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. By the way, who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ himself, who's the man now standing in front of them. Look at verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand. By the way, uh, a little commercial. I'm going to deal with this in Sunday school. This was prophesied in the book of Malachi, the last statement the Jews had in the Old Testament. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but, the, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And John is warning the religious leaders of his day, you are chaff right now. You are headed toward destruction. And notice back in Matthew now, chapter 21, verse 32, he says, John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. Now, can you understand 
that at first this message may have been hard for them to believe. Because by and large, what the, what the people had adopted by Jesus' day and John the Baptist's day was that merely by being circumcised and by being born as a Jewish person, I'm on my way to heaven. That that's not the case. We all have to come. And what John was doing is he's baptizing Jewish people, which was what they did when Gentiles became Jews. He was saying this, you're not saved by right of your nationality. You have to come to know Christ, uh, who's coming. He's not, he's not been there yet. He, he, you, have to, you have to repent and prepare for your heart to meet him. You have to turn from your sins. That's hard for them to take. But notice they're, they're more responsible than just merely not liking his message. Because keep reading. In verse 32 now. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. They're like that first son that said no early in life. And this person goes off and they become a, a, a traitor. They become a thief or they become a prostitute. And yet when they went and they heard John the Baptist preaching, and John the Baptist said, listen, you have, to, you have to prepare to meet the Messiah. You've got to turn from your sins. And the way you can evidence that is by following in, in baptism here, showing that you're, you're repentant for what you've done and you want, you want God's mercy. And people followed that and did that. And, 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 and publicans and harlots changed. They were different people. Soldiers stopped beating on people and, 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 uh, and oppressing people. People's lives were changing. And so notice what Jesus says here. He says, but the publicans and the harlots believed him, and when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe in him. You saw evidence that John was real. You saw people's lives change. You saw what God could do. And then you still walked away? They were acting as if they were obedient. May I just say, it is so easy for us to act. May God deliver us from acting obedient to God. Jesus isn't done. He's going to deal with their hypocritical loyalty to God. Because all of these people would, would have fought you if you said they weren't loyal to God. So he says here another parable, verse 33. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out or loaned it out to husbandmen or vine dressers. Okay, uh, some of you may have tenant farmers. The idea is that that this guy owns a vineyard. He 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 does all the work to set it up, and then he's going to go away. And so he he uh, rented it out to some 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 local guys. And the point was that they would tend the vineyard and give him part of the proceeds. Okay, and he went into a far country. Now, we do need to ask a couple questions here before we go any farther. What is the vineyard? What does that represent? And I will tell you, I don't think there's any question as to what the vineyard represents. And being the top religious leaders of the nation, people who could stick a pin in the scroll and tell you what, what word it fell on. These guys who knew their, their, their Old Testament, they would have easily been able to pick out 
what Jesus is talking about. If you want to go back to Isaiah chapter 5 with me, you'll see, you'll see what the vineyard represents. Isaiah chapter 5. Notice with me, if you would please start with verse 1, down to verse 7. <clears throat> now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Now notice verse 2. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein and he looked that it should bring forth grapes but it brought forth wild grapes. Okay, do you see any similarity before what Jesus described here? Okay, now I'm going to put them up. Here's what Jesus said, okay, in his, in his statement about the vineyard. He said that the guy, um, he planted a vineyard. Okay, does that not happen here in verse 2? Of Isaiah? You're in Isaiah 5 still, right? Okay, he plants the vineyard. He said he set a hedge around it. Oh, he said, well, the hedge isn't mentioned. Well, let's keep, keep reading. I'm in Isaiah 5 still. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, I judge, I pray, between, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard than I, that I have not done to it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. There was a hedge around it. It's the same thing. Jesus said this guy built a vineyard. He put a hedge around it. Okay? Now, here's what Jesus said next. He did a, dug a wine press in it. Do you see the wine press back up there in verse 2? It's there. He said that he built a tower in it. Do you see a tower in there? Built a tower in the midst of it. There's no doubt that Jesus is using a parable based upon this image back in Isaiah. But the question is then, what does the vineyard represent? Well, I'm going to let you read verse 6 and then, and then verse 7 will lay it out. I will lay it waste... It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. Israel was the, was, was the vineyard. And he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So clearly the vineyard is representing the nation of Israel. And that leads to a second question. Who are the vine dressers? They're supposed to be the leaders. That's exactly right. An analogy that often is also used in the Old Testament is they're called shepherds at times, and, and the flock of the sheep as the, as, as the picture. But in the vineyard, it would be the vine dressers would be the spiritual leaders. Yeah. And remember, political and spiritual leadership were, were, were both in the same people. So the vine dressers are the leaders, the very people that Jesus is standing in front of right now who've questioned his authority. Why are you doing this to us? He says, okay. So we have, this, we have the nation created by God, all these blessings that God gave the nation, and he set the nation under the authority of these vine dressers, these spiritual leaders. Verse, let's go back to our text in Matthew 21 and pick it up at verse 34. 
When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. So the master who owns the vineyard is going to get some of the proceeds. That just makes sense. The tenant farmers, we're going to keep some, but they're also supposed to give some back to the master. That would be God then expecting some kind of return from their leadership. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Who are the servants who keep getting persecuted? I'm sorry? The prophets. The people who would call the people back to God, who would say, listen, God has given us our nation. We need to turn back. We need to keep the law. We need to follow what God has told us to do. And what happened to the prophets? They were repeatedly persecuted. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did unto them likewise. Last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. Before we go any farther, I'll show you an example of this in Acts chapter 7. This, um, uh, this is what Stephen said. And by the way, some of these people that he's talking to in, in Acts chapter 7 uh, very possibly are the same people. Some of these are probably the same leaders that were involved with Jesus here in the temple because there's not a whole lot of time between these events. Stephen has been giving them a history lesson which many of them would be well familiar with probably all of them, God's hand upon the nation in the past. But then he, he turns it and pointedly uh, goes after his audience who had arrested him for preaching Jesus and the resurrection. By the way, this is now after Christ's death and, and burial and resurrection. Stephen says, ye stiff-necked and... Un I'm in verse 51, I'm sorry. Acts 7, verse 51. He says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears... Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have, your have, have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, of whom ye have now been betrayers and murderers, who received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He's saying, you're not, you're not keeping your fakes. And you've been involved and your forefathers have been involved in murdering the prophets who foretold of the Christ who you, in fact, murdered. So let's go back to Jesus' parable. As the, the owner of the vineyard, by the way, who would that be? That'd be God the Father, right? The owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send him my son. Verse 38. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said unto themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. By the way, it's interesting painting here. I don't know if you noticed it. <clears throat> There's the dead son right there. And the uh, couple of his murderers maybe discussing what to do with the body. Very interesting, some of these painters, what they, what they did to capture this parable. So what's Jesus expressing that, that these leaders are, are planning to do to him? They're planning to kill him. And were they? Yeah. They were since Lazarus' resurrection, at least. 
He's nailing it. But then he has an interesting question. It's a question that should have brought them to, to thinking some about where they're headed. Verse 40. Remember, Jesus is not merely talking. He's talking in their presence, but there's another crowd of people who are loyal followers who are listening to him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? What do you think he's going to do to the vine dressers that murdered his son? Verse 41, they say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out or loan out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render the, him the fruits in their seasons. He's going to change the leadership and he's going to, he's going to judge viciously those who, who offended him, who murdered his son. By the way, Luke's account of this, a person out of the audience just kind of blurts out, God forbid. The strongest way you can say, oh, no, and, and, or no, in, in, in the Greek language, the idea is, is this person realized what, what, what he's talking about is the destruction of the nation, which is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's saying that my rejection by you leaders and my coming death, God is going to use. It's going to be a marvelous thing in spite of the horrific, tragic consequences that you're going to go through for doing it and for rejecting me. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now it's very interesting, the word nation there. Um, and it can be translated a couple different ways. It can be literally translated nation, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or it can also be translated people, and specifically Gentile people. And so what Jesus is saying is, God's going to work with those who are willing to listen to him. That's what he's saying. You're going to lose it. All the blessings that you could have had, you're going to lose them because God is going to speak to those who will listen to him. And may I say that has not changed. It has not changed. If we are hard-hearted and we refuse to listen to God, we refuse to repent of our sin, God will turn to someone else. He doesn't, we don't, he doesn't owe us a thing. And then he makes this statement Verse 44, that I want you to think about. Whosoever shall fall on this stone. Now, what's the, who's the stone in that? The stone which the builders rejected. Who is that? That's the Christ. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. He's saying this. When you fall on me, when you decide to fall on my mercy, you will be a broken person. There will be things in your life that are not going to be as you want them to be. You're going to have to die to yourself. It will break you to follow me. What's the alternative? But on whomsoever it shall fall, if you are rebellious against me and the stone falls on you, my judgment falls on you, it will crush him to powder. Those are the two options. Fall on the Lord's mercy and yes, be a broken person or rebel against God and come under his destructive judgment. 
So he has given, in his mercy, really, a, a warning to these leaders, another warning. I know where you're headed. Don't come under God's judgment. It would have been hard. It would have been, it would have been, it would have, it would have been life-altering for any of these people to break with their comrades. I don't know if any of them did. That brings us to their response. By the way, this is a very interesting painting as well. This is of Jesus. It's, called, it's actually entitled, No Man Laid His Hands on Him. It was a statement that was made in the book of Gospel of John on a couple different occasions when Jesus was in the temple. And it shows the, the soldiers around there getting ready to arrest him, and yet they were not able to do so. And that happened on more than one occasion. Because it said his hour was not yet come. What is the response of these hypocritical leaders? Well, the first thing you'll notice is they realized Christ was speaking about them. They got the message. They didn't miss it. Verse 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. They were the son that said, I am going, sir, and never went. They were the, 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 the vine dressers who were planning on murdering the master's son. They got it. But what was their response after they realized Jesus was talking about them? But when they sought to lay hands on him, you see that? So you'll notice they refused to repent. There's no repentance. They feared the multitude, for they took him for a prophet, which means they just continued scheming to harm Christ. Not able to do it today. Too many followers around. Our day will come. That brings me to some conclusions. This is another painting, rather graphic again, of, a, of the son being dead there outside the vineyard that his father owned. What are the uh, issues to consider when you consider these, this, this account of Christ and, and dealing with hypocrisy? Well, there is the issue of authority. And the issue sim simply boils down to this. Do I really want God to run my life? Because Jesus Christ is saying this. I am God and I have the right to run everything in your life. That's where it's really at. But you're going to have to make that decision. God does not force you to accept his authority. Not yet. Come the day in eternity when you will have to. But... but, but but tragically, as a lost person, you will forever be separated from God. You have a choice. Do I want to accept his authority in my life? There's a second issue. That is the issue of hypocrisy. Because religion without submission to God demands hypocrisy. Demands that I fake it. And only God knows how many people that are attending church this morning are just faking it. It's the same thing that Jesus was dealing with. We sing the songs, we, 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 we read the scripture, we even may pray or even preach the sermon. But if I'm not in submission to God, I'm acting. Then there's the issue of responsibility. 
More knowledge equals more responsibility. The fact that these people had seen the ministry of John the Baptist, they had seen people change. They saw what Jesus has done. Not only healing people physically, but changing people's lives spiritually. They were responsible for what they knew. And you and I are responsible too for what we know. God understands. He knows what we know. It's the issue of responsibility. There's also the issue of appearance. Some sins are more obvious than others. It's pretty easy to pick out the prostitute. It's easy to pick out the, the, the traitor, the thief. A little harder to pick out the guy that's, that's uh, uh, covering his sin a little bit better and more, uh, more discreetly. God sees it all. And it is an abomination to God that when we're acting, and, and it, may, it doesn't matter how many people we're fooling, we're not fooling him. Then there's the issue of violence. And you will find that those who violently reject God often deal violently with his messengers. It has happened down through the ages, and it is still happening today. There are Christians all over the planet who are jailed or are threatened. They're being intimidated simply because they stand with Christ. Jesus said we're like sheep among wolves because we don't feel the, the, uh, the right to merely uh, you know, fight back in an illegal and immoral way. We don't. And violence has been reaped upon Christians down through the ages. Then there's the issue of warning. Jesus Christ gives a warning to these people, to all who might be hypocrites even today. The danger of missing his kingdom because I'm putting on an act. Could that be you today? Could you just be acting, pretending? You know what's really bad? Is when you believe your own lie. When you've actually come to the place where you fooled yourself. Just give you a couple applications in closing. First of all, if, if you're not saved, you do need to submit to Christ and his authority over your life. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, the fact that Jesus is Lord, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved, Romans 10, 9. Accepting his authority over your life is key to your, to your salvation. But secondly... If you're a Christian here this morning, are you acting? Does Jesus Christ have authority over your time, especially your free time? Does he have authority over your relationships? Are you letting him govern how you treat your family? How you get along with your friends? Are you, are you letting him choose your friends? Are you allowing God to, to, uh, to choose your potential mate? Does, God have, does Christ have rulership over your entertainment? Over where you work and, and, and how long you work? Over your dreams and your goals? You say, well, how do I have Christ over all of those things? Well, first of all, it, it, the Bible says acknowledge him in all your ways. But secondly, do I get angry when God changes my plans? That really says who's Lord over your life. Is it okay if God changes something, takes something from you? 
does he really have the right over all of those things? Because the bottom line is simply this. Jesus Christ is Lord. But God calls you to voluntarily submit to him. That's up to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of Christ's message. And, oh, Lord, he gets right at the heart. These guys came with a, a question of anger, trying to insult his authority to do what he was doing. And, Lord, you just went right at the issue of the heart issue of hypocrisy. And, Lord, that doesn't just cut for them. It cuts for us. Saved or lost here, Lord, obviously every lost person that is pretending to be a Christian is, is, is putting on an act. Oh, Lord, deliver them from, the, from not only self-deception, which is so horrible when one has believed his own lie, but, oh, Lord, also deliver from, from the willingness just to pretend. Lord, I think as Christians, we can become very good at acting like we're in submission to thee, and we're not. We're running the show. I, I want my way. And really, it's not. We're asking you to just basically second our motion. Oh, Lord, deliver us from, from seizing back the, the, the reins of our own uh, lives and saying, I'm going to run it. Help us, Father, we pray, not to be actors, to be genuine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let me invite you, if you don't currently attend a Bible preaching church, to consider visiting us at Calkins as soon as you're able. Our Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. We have classes for all ages and a nursery is provided. Our morning worship service begins at approximately 10 a.m. and our Sunday evening Bible study starts at 6.30 p.m. We'd love to see you in person if God wills. For those of you who can't make it in person, we live stream many of our services. You can access them live on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church on that platform. Remember that Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Our page also contains a link to all the podcasts of these radio messages. Also, several months back, we began uploading videos of our services to YouTube, so if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube, and you'll find the beginning of our presence there. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And recognize his work of love and Christ receive for me. Free.